We're in 2 Corinthians tonight, chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 12 through our passage, which concludes this morning at uh, chapter 3, verse 5. And so uh, chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, and he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor or the aroma of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor or aroma of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation, that's recommendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Now, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So the Apostle Paul spent one and a half years in the city of Corinth in establishing the church that was ultimately birthed there. It's the second longest duration that the apostle spent in any one particular place during any of his missionary journeys. The only place that he spent more time was in the city of Ephesus where he spent three years. Now, when Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, that is the one previous to the one that we're reading now, he was in Ephesus during those uh, three years of his time that were there. And immediately upon sending the letter off to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was immediately struck by a strong anxiety uh, and a second guessing of himself as to whether or not he did the right thing and, and, and wanting to um, certainly have a positive outcome in um, the receiving of that letter by the Corinthian church. And from the time that he saw that letter leave his presence until the time that he received word as to their response to that letter, the Apostle Paul had absolutely no rest in his spirit at all. It tells us at the beginning of the passage that we just read that leaving Ephesus, he came into the region of Troas. And Troas was on kind of the, the, the northwestern uh, border of, of Asia, the continent of Asia or Asia Minor, and it's right across the Aegean Sea from Macedonia, which is due north of Corinth. And so he came to Troas, which was really the port that you would catch a ship and then cross over into to the Corinthian region, Macedonia, and then, and then southward. And he tells us that when he came to Troas, a door was opened unto him of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul was not one to pass up the opportunity of a door that was opened unto him by the Lord but he did. In Troas, he was so concerned about the state of the church in Corinth and about how they would receive the letter that he wrote that he abandoned even an opportunity for the gospel in Troas in order to get over into Macedonia and to find out how things were going in Corinth. That was the heart of the Apostle Paul towards the church that was there. Now, he gets word from Titus while he's in Macedonia, north of Corinth, that the letter was well received and that the church was doing well. And for the Apostle Paul, it was a huge sigh of relief. He realized they're going to make it. And he's so overjoyed by the news that they received his correction and that they were doing well that it inspired him to write now this second letter, 2 Corinthians, the letter that we're reading 
in, in our study here tonight. And so Paul writes this letter and the tone of this letter is so much different. Whereas the first letter was a lot like a parent who's giving correction to a young child, this letter is like a parent who's writing to an adult child, wherein the issues used to be, you know, share your toys with your brother, uh, you know, all the little things that parents give in terms of instruction to their kids. But now it's a parent that sees their child growing up, realizing that they're going to do okay, and they begin to share with them the deeper things the more intimate things, the more real things uh, about the, 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 um, the glories of life beyond the elementary days. And so Paul writes this letter now to them, a much more mature letter. And after giving them this update in chapter one of his personal situation and how he ended up where he was and what happened in his life since he left with them, now as he picks up in the passage that we're beginning to study tonight, he gives to them what really is some of the most incredible and uh, um, inspirational and um, deepest truths that are written in all of the Bible. Uh, I don't know that there, besides maybe some of the things that are written in the book of Ephesians or, or, or maybe some other choice passages, I don't know that there is a segment of scripture that is more useful and more insightful uh, it, it has more potential than the passage that we begin here and then look at all the way through until the end of chapter six. And just on a very personal note, I can testify to you that the, that the concepts and the truth that the Apostle Paul shares in this segment of scripture has changed my life. It lifted me to realize the things that are here out of a, an early Christian stage that was really typified by the roller coaster of constant ups and downs, of constant unsurety, constant second guessing of myself and, and of my faith and am I right with God and does he love me and how do I walk with him? And it brought me the appropriation of these things into a very stable uh, and fruitful walk with the Lord. And so these things are of the utmost importance as it concerns what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament context of what it is to be a Christian. And so Paul writes these things to them now. Now, in terms of segue, going from introduction and now as a bridge into what Paul has to say, I think one of the most troubling um, parables that Jesus ever told, one of the um, most uh, difficult teachings that Jesus ever gave was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that's the one where Jesus said that there was a man who sowed good seed in his field, hoping for a good crop to be yielded from it. But it says that at night an enemy came and that he sowed tares or weeds among the wheat, the good seed that was sown by this farmer. And that when the seeds germinated and they began to sprout, it became evident to the farmer that it wasn't a pure harvest, a pure crop, that there was corruption in it that there were things among the wheat that shouldn't be there. The, the plant that he was talking about is called the bearded darnel. And the, the thing with the bearded darnel is that while it's growing with the wheat, you can't tell the difference between the real wheat and the bearded darnel. They look almost identical. The difference is that the bearded darnel is not wheat, and therefore it has no wheat berry in it, and so it's a complete waste of space and it's a waste of nutrients that are being drawn from the soil and taken from the good crop. And the only way that you can tell the difference is that when it comes harvest time, the weight of the wheat because of the wheat berries bows down and the bearded darnel stands straight up because it doesn't have the, the, the weight of that fruit within it. And so the whole time this fruit, this, this crop is growing, you can't tell the difference between what is real and what is not real. And Jesus said that that's the way it's going to be within the kingdom of God. Now in the parable, he goes on to say that some of the other uh, servants in that um, place, that they asked and they said, do you want us to go through and root out the tares? And the farmer said, no, don't do that because you won't be able to discern perfectly and you're, you're going to inevitably root out some of the wheat and we don't want to root out the wheat. So let them grow together until the harvest time and then we'll deal with separating the wheat from the tares. And then Jesus applied it by saying that that's the kingdom of God and it's the church. And he says this, that there will be some that are real and there'll be some that are fake. And the implication is that it will be impossible 
as we're interacting with one another and living in this world, citizens of God's kingdom, to tell the difference between those that truly are born-again Christians, blood-bought by God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and those that are simply imitators of the things of God that have adapted to a Christian lifestyle that have never surrendered to him as Lord and given themselves to him uh, in that way, themselves uh, to the Lord. And so um, that's the question. Now, the thing that troubles me about that parable is that it forces me to ask myself the question, which one am I? Am I a wheat or am I a tear? Am I an authentic, real, blood-bought, born-again disciple of Jesus Christ? Or am I an imitator, one who's adapted my behaviors for whatever my reasons might be? And not only am I deceiving others, but I myself also might be self-deceived into thinking that I'm something that I'm actually not. And so that's the question that I must ask myself when I come uh, to terms with that. So the point is this, is that there are... And there always will be counterfeits amongst the Christian citizenship or those in the Christian church that call themselves Christians that aren't actually Christian. Jesus said that there is one door into this faith. He said, I am the door and we must come through Christ. There is no other way. Then Jesus beyond that said that there is one way after coming through that door. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so Jesus, as Savior and Lord, is the door in. That's how we're born again. And then the revealed will of God, based upon the word of God and the word of Christ, is the way that we then live, being surrendered to his lordship as the prince of our lives. That's the one way in Jesus and the one way that we live through him. And any authentic, real Christian is going to have those two marks within their life. Now, a counterfeit will say those things, but there's a common denominator that every counterfeit Christian has. And that common denominator is that those people refuse to die to themselves in order to let Christ live in them. And they refuse to allow him to be the Lord of their life, submitting that his ways would be their ways. And that's true about every person that calls themselves a Christian that isn't really a Christian. That's the root at the very bottom of it all is that they don't want to die to themselves and they don't want Jesus to be the Lord of their life. Now, the reason you say, why would they want to be in the church or called Christians or a part of his kingdom if they don't want to do those things? Well, it's the same reason why the bearded Darnell is happy to abide in the field with the wheat because it's good soil. There's something to be gained. There's nourishment, there's survival, there's a reason, there's a motive. And so it is with everyone who calls themselves a Christian that isn't really following the Lord. There's always a reason why they do it. There's something that they're going to achieve to their own ends in the whole thing. And those reasons can be very vast. We see it with Cain, that he wanted the blessing of God within his life. He wanted to alleviate the guilt of his own conscience. We read throughout the Bible and we see various people using God and using the things of God and the resources of God, but yet not having an allegiance to God, wanting something from him, but not wanting to follow with him. We see Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, very much a counterfeit, not even discernible by the prophet Elisha himself. And yet his motive, what he wanted was to use the things of God for financial gain. We see the same thing with Judas Iscariot, undiscerned even by the other 11 apostles. Is it I, they said, and they didn't know it was him. We read of Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts who pulled Peter aside privately and he offered him money and he says, teach me this, this trick also that on whomsoever I lay my hands, they would receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, your money perish with you for I perceive you're in the gall of bitterness. You need to repent of this, your wickedness and pray that God would forgive you the sin of your heart. Very much a counterfeit. Someone who professed faith in Christ, but yet who had his own ends in mind when he did it. We see it throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and certainly all the way throughout the history of the church, even into the present day churches, even our church, has people in it that call themselves Christians, 
that want to be known by this or identify with it, but in their heart they are completely counterfeit. They have not been born again. Paul writes to Timothy and he says that there would be many in the last days that have a form of godliness, that is an outward appearance, but that they deny the power of it and that they are as lost and unregenerate as the worst sinner whom we'd see out at any place at all, even though they sit within our midst. And here's the amazing thing about a counterfeit who calls themselves a Christian is that it is absolutely impossible to discern them or detect them by their appearance, by their words, by their works, by their church attendance, by the things that they know or the things that they say in their doctrine, and even by their actions. It is impossible to discern them by any of those outward things because there are people that are able to adapt so well and they're able to fit in and hide their sins so much that even the apostle Peter would write in his epistle and he would say that some men's sins are exposed before, but some men's won't be exposed until after when it's revealed in heaven. And so it can be impossible to detect the counterfeit in our midst. And sadly, sometimes it can even be impossible to detect the counterfeit traitor that lives inside of us. So you say, okay, well then what's the exposure point? At what point is it known or where in in the evaluation of a Christian can it be known whether or not someone is authentic and legitimate or whether they're just playing a part and and, and simply fulfilling a role? And the answer is that that there absolutely does come a place and a point where it is possible uh, to do it. And here's why. Because the Christian life and the work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's heart is so powerful and so real that there are things that he does in a life and that only he can do in a life that it is impossible for a person, no matter how good of an an actor or a make-believer or a chameleon that they are, it is absolutely impossible for them to fake or to counterfeit. It just cannot be done, no matter what. And what the Apostle Paul does in this segment of Scripture that we're looking at here tonight is that he gives to us five characteristics Five things that were evidenced in his own life that he calls upon as proof that he was the real deal. And the reason why he's doing that is not so that they'll acknowledge that he is the real deal, but he's doing it so that they might in their own lives evaluate where they're at. Am I a real Christian? And that's a great question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we real Christians? And so he's going to give these five characteristics that are completely impossible to falsify or fake. And then what he's going to do in our study as we move forward next week through the rest of chapter three is he's going to explain to us how these things are borne out in our lives. And so I give you by way of warning, because I'll tell you this, this is a challenging passage of scripture. And Paul's going to say in it two times that who is sufficient for these things, meaning that we are designed by God to hear these things and to feel on the other side of it like, oh my goodness, am I even saved? But what Paul is going to say as soon as he finishes this is he's saying, listen, if you really are belonging to God, then to see these things worked out in your life is absolutely not only possible, but it is absolutely going to happen. But here's how it happens. So we're going to see these things as we move through this, uh, this, this text in the next weeks as we go forward. But tonight we look at five things that are absolutely impossible to fake that were true in the life of the Apostle Paul. And the first one is given to us right there in verse 14 of chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Now thanks be unto God which always causes us to triumph in Christ. The first un Uh, what's the word? Counterfeitable? Should have planned that one out. (laughs) Unfakeable (laughs) trait of 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 a truly Christian person is gratitude in spite of grief. Now, if you recall from our last study, the things that Paul has shared with the Corinthians concerning what took place within his life between leaving Corinth and the writing of the epistle, I want you to just listen to the 10 adjectives that Paul uses in chapter one in the first part of chapter two to describe his situation. You might've missed it as we read them, but let me just read these words to you. This describes his own experience. Tribulations, 
affliction, sufferings, trouble, despair, pressure, death, heaviness, anguish of heart, and no rest. You can go through the first chapter and a half of 2 Corinthians and you can circle all of those words that Paul uses to describe his present situation. That's a lot. (laughs) That's heavy, isn't it? But notice how he then summarizes his attitude in spite of all that's going on in his life as he begins there in verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God. He's able to look at all of the difficulty, all of the pressure, all of the death and heaviness, all of the despair, and he's able to look through the lens of Christ in all of that, and he's able to give sincere thanksgiving to God, even though the situation has been nothing but hell. And that is something that someone who is a counterfeit Christian absolutely cannot do. They cannot do it because they don't have the light of God's life and the promise of God's word at work and alive in their heart in a way that they can see how God might be working all things together for good in them in it. Jesus is the extreme example of this and that it tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, right before he was about to endure the greatest suffering that anyone would ever suffer in the history of eternity, it says that he took bread in the presence of all of his disciples, he broke it, knowing that that bread symbolized his body, and it says that he gave thanks. That he was able to see through the sufferings and the difficulties of his current situation and to see the greater purpose that was being worked out through those sufferings, and he was able to give genuine thanksgiving to God in spite of the difficulty of what he was about to go through. And only someone who's been truly affected by God and who the Holy Spirit of God is at work and alive in their heart can do that. Otherwise, it is absolutely impossible because it doesn't make sense. One of the frustrating things about God, at least to a new believer, is that he is not a chatterbox and that he doesn't give a whole lot of information out and that he's impossible to figure out. And so what God will do in a life, and he does this in every life, is that he looks at it and he sees something that he wants to bring forth. He sees something good. And so what God does is that he arises or he brings into that life a set of circumstances that are going to produce what he wants to bring forth within that life that he only knows is good. But oftentimes those circumstances, in fact, most times, mean discomfort for us because things happen, things change, circumstances that our lives you know, look like what Paul said when he said tribulation, pressure, death, heaviness, anguish of heart, and all of that. And we begin to argue with God and we say, God, why is this happening? It's supposed to be blessed, this life. It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to bring glory to glory. And that does not describe the current situation. Why are these things happening? It It can be quite frustrating. So, because he doesn't tell us what he's doing or what it's gonna look like on the other side, what he does do is he gives us his word. He gives us promises. Romans chapter eight, verse 18. It says there, the apostle Paul writes, and he says, for I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Meaning that though we're suffering in this moment, that suffering serves a purpose that we'll be glad for when we understand it all on the other side. He gives us a promise similar to it, just 10 verses later, Romans 8, 28. He says, for we know that all things are working together for good to those that love God, to those whom are called according to his purpose. That means that whatever circumstance we're facing or going through, however difficult the trial is, God declares and he says, you can trust me that I'm working this out for your good. In 1 Thessalonians, there's a command given to us, chapter 5, verse 18, associated with these things. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. Meaning that not only are you to understand that the difficulties and trials and pressures of your life are serving a greater purpose, that by faith and obedience, you're to look at those things as difficult as they are, And you're to give thanks. We are to give thanks to God in the midst of those pressures because we trust that what he's doing is greater 
not only than our understanding, but greater than what we would be able to produce in our lives should we be the ones governing our lives ourselves. Now, he couples that command, God does, with a promise. And this is where you can tell the difference between a counterfeit and a true Christian. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, precious verses for the Christian. He says this, he says, be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, there it is again, let your requests be made known unto God. And here's the promise. And if you do that, the peace of God, which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now, this can only be true in the life of someone that truly has the spirit of God. That once you lay your concerns and your petitions and requests before God because of the pressure that is in your life, once you lay those things before him, he promises that he will follow that up by putting a peace in your heart that supersedes or transcends your understanding. Meaning all of the circumstances right now point to bad outcome. But I have a peace internally that can only come from God that testifies to me that everything is going to work out just fine. And if that is present within your life, it is an evidence that the Spirit of God is at work within you. And you are now able to give thanks even though the situation is dire. Things are grave and not looking good. But you can say, thank you, God, that though I don't understand and though I cannot see, my, my life is in the hands of a faithful shepherd. And I know that you will bring this through for my good in the end. And I, and I trust you enough to leave you there. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't feel the pressure of our situation. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God to help us. But what it does mean is that we trust him enough that we're able to leave our cares at the foot of the cross and walk in peace and in thanksgiving, knowing that he is working it out for our good. And only God can give this. Now, I want this personally, and I think you do too, I want this passage to search me tonight. And so can I take the five or six things in my life that I don't like right now? And every one of us have five or six things in our life that we don't like right now. And can I take those things and can I, as a professing Christian, genuinely turn my heart towards heaven and give thanks to God for each of those things and say, God, I, I, can't, I can't confess to enjoy this and I don't like it and I want it to go away, but thank you. Thank you that this is in my life right now. Thank you that you know what I need and that you see that you can bring something forth through this circumstance and in that you're not removing it from me you're doing something that's good. And so by faith and with true gratitude, I'm giving you thanks for the circumstance that I find myself in. That's supernatural. And no false Christian can do that. Only a real Christian. And Paul demonstrates that he's a real Christian and that he can give thanks in the midst of a very difficult situation. The second, un, um, here it is again. Someone give me a word for this, please, at the end of the study. Un Uncounterfeitable, <laughs> you'll remember it, at least, you know, uh, aspect of a person who professes to be a Christian. And we also see it there in verse 14, is that they will, they will experience victory in their life in spite of weakness. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. He says, I always come out a winner in Christ. I'm thankful that no matter what the situation is, I'm a winner in it. One of the things that it, it drives me crazy, my little four-year-old started t-ball this year, and I have a 12-year-old who was there, and now he's beyond it. But the thing that drives me nuts about the early years of Little League is that everybody wins. <laughs> we don't keep score. There's however many strikes as, as they need to hit the ball. And, you know, and I understand. I get it. I know why we do that. But it's not real life, is it? There's a winner and there's a loser. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that in Christ, we are winners. And we always triumph. And you can look at the track record of Paul's life as a Christian, and you can see that this is absolutely always true. 
The very first moment that he met Jesus Christ, he was knocked off his horse, smitten with blindness, and he had to be led by the hand of someone else into a city. That looks like defeat, doesn't it? But just three days later, he walked out of that city on his own power, having received his sight back, now filled with the Holy Spirit and sent on a mission that would make him one of the greatest men that ever lived. He was the victor in spite of a situation that looked like he was the loser. Just a few days later, he was in Jerusalem and he was banished from Jerusalem by the apostles themselves. One of the biggest letdowns for certain in Paul's life, thinking that he had a message to give to the Christians in Jerusalem, but being rejected by the apostles and then sent to Tarsus, which was home. Go home, Paul. We, we don't need you here. You're disturbing the peace. Go home. And what looked like defeat turned into for Paul three years that he spent with Jesus himself being prepared and discipled and then being commissioned to a ministry that would make him greater than all of the other apostles that sent him away in the first place. What looked like defeat turned into victory. When the apostle Paul was at Philippi, which is just one snapshot of all of his missionary journey, he came into the city and found a bunch of women praying by the river. He established a a regular meeting time with them and then he cast a demon out of a woman who was giving false advertising or bad advertising to God. And it resulted in Paul being beaten, arrested, and left for dead in a prison with Silas. It looked like defeat, like nothing had happened. But knowing that God had accomplished his purpose through that experience and that a church would be birthed in Philippi, that night they sang praises to God. And an earthquake came, broke the prison chains, Paul was set free, a church was birthed, and it was forever chronicled in scripture, the amazing miracle that God did. What looked like defeat turned into victory. In Asia, which Paul testified in chapter one that we read last week, he said we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Things were so dire, it looked like we were never going to escape, but God delivered us from so great a death and does deliver and we trust in him, we shall yet be delivered. What looked like death turned into victory so that now Paul can testify and say, To the born-again believer who puts his trust or her trust in the person of the living God, the outcome of every situation that you find yourself in is that there will be victory. And I can look in my own life and I can see the things in my life that I, at the time they happened, thought were the greatest setbacks. And now having seen the other side of those things, I can see how every one of them turned into a stepping stone for greater things and greater measures of what God was doing in my life and in my relationship with him. He's the one that gives to us the victory. You say, okay, now what about us? I I can receive that that happened to the apostle Paul. He was the apostle Paul. But what assurance do I have that this is going to be true for me if I'm truly a Christian and I put my faith in Jesus Christ? In Romans chapter 8, Verse 35, the Apostle Paul writes concerning us on this uh, level, and he says this in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, victors. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the promise, is that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, if you are a legitimate Christian and you are trusting in Christ as the Lord of your life and the source of your strength, then you will always come out on top and every setback will show itself to be a stepping stone to greater blessing in the long run. Jesus said this, he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Joseph in the Old Testament would look at the dire situation that he was in. He would look at his brothers and he would say, you meant it for evil, but God turned it for the good. And you can look in the Bible from Genesis all the way through until Revelation and you'll see what God has done for his people that looked as though they were certainly to be defeated. Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, David, Esther, Elijah, 
Asaph, the psalmist who was even fighting with himself. And every single one of them came out on the other side and they can testify that he always causes us to triumph in Christ. But notice that it's in Christ that we triumph. This isn't true for everyone that lives. Not everyone wins. It's only those that are truly in Christ that God will cause continual victory within their life. The only way that a true Christian, someone who really has the spirit of God in them, cannot win is if they don't fight. The reason why David's brothers didn't take down Goliath is because they didn't fight with Goliath. But every Christian who does will ultimately find themselves victorious. I talk to a lot of Christians that face battles, they face struggles, they go through things, they say, I've been battling this for years and it seems that there is no victory. I can tell you this, is that God is true and that every man is a liar and that there is victory for every Christian in every battle and for everything that they face. He does call us to fight. And if we're not willing to fight, then we shouldn't expect to see victory. But if we will stand and we will fight and stand against what God says he's stronger than, then we will see victory in our lives on every turn. That will never be true for the person that calls themselves a Christian that isn't really a Christian. They will abide continually in their sin and they will see no victory. Absolutely not. The self-reliant person or the non-Christian person will not see it, but the true Christian always will. The third uh, mark of an authentic Christian that the Apostle Paul can uh, testify concerning himself and that should also apply to our lives is the clear distinction in our lives that we belong to Christ. And again, in verse 14, notice what he says. He says that he makes manifest the savor or the aroma of his knowledge by us in every place. Then he describes what he means. He says, for we are unto God a sweet savor or aroma of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death and to the other, we're the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Here's what the apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying that if you are blood-bought and you belong to Christ and the spirit, spirit of God dwells in you, then there is a spiritual aroma that exudes from your life that unmistakably identifies you as a Christian to three different parties, to God, to the saved, and also to the lost. We were uh, in Target the other night, and it was all seven of us, which is quite chaotic. And usually if that happens, it happens about the time of night that Georgia and I completely run out of steam. And so we had the five kids and we were there and I don't know about her, but I was exhausted as we, uh, you know, found the things that we needed and we went through the cash register and the lady who was checking us out just stank of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it was exuding. She had the worst CO I have ever seen in my life. CO, Christ odor. It was coming out, you know, and, and she was so full of the love of Christ, so full of joy. The way that she was talking to our kids and the things that she was saying to us. And I mean, it was almost prophetic, like she was an angel. The things she knew about our family without, I mean, we've never seen this woman before in our lives at all. And Georgia was so blessed and uplifted by her, you know, that she, she said to her and she said, you're such a nice person. What is it about you? And the woman looked at us and she said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And I looked at her and I said, oh, yes, I would try us. And she says, it's a gift from God. And I said, I knew it. I could smell it. There is something that is evident in the life of a child of God that is discernible by those on the outside and those on the inside. Now, it isn't always the exuberance of a personality like that. You know, we rejoice when we meet those people. They have a gift of encouragement and they lift us up like they do. But it manifests in so many different ways. And the Apostle Paul says, no matter where we are, no matter what circumstance we're in, God makes the aroma of Christ come forth from us. It's him that does it. Sometimes we don't even know why it happens. It's true for the saved. It's also true for the unsaved. I remember vividly and distinctly, before I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I knew when I was in the presence of a Christian. And it wasn't the aroma of life. At that time, it was the aroma of death. I hated Christians. 
And if I could even smell it from a distance, I just despised and loathed the person whom I was around. And so there is an aroma that exists that a true Christian will bring forth with them wherever it is that they go. And it cannot be faked because it's God that makes it happen. Notice the order and don't pass that up. He says, unto God and then to them that are saved and then also to them that are lost. That if we want to have the aroma of Christ coming forth out of our life, then the very first thing is that we must be in a right relationship with God. If we are not, then that aroma is not present. And that's why you cannot counterfeit the true aroma of Jesus Christ within your life. It can only come as a person is before the Lord, that knows the Lord, that's right with God, then that comes out towards the saved and towards the lost. It's an amazing thing that very often that scent is manifested in sufferings, isn't it? I mean, when is it that the world is recognizing us at all? It's when we're going through things like what my cousin is going through. You know, the amount of people whose lives have been touched by the testimony that they've held through this. I mean, just an obscure middle-class couple that lives in the suburbs of Buffalo, raising a family that adopted some kids. No one would ever know who they are. But their faith is real. It's authentic. And thus God made the savor of their faith known throughout the whole city and also throughout the whole world. But he did it in a time of their suffering, didn't he? He used circumstances that they would never choose for themselves to make them eternally wealthy. And they are eternally wealthy. And the amount of people that they've touched and the testimony that they've given and the amount of people that they've reached. They have reached, Kim and Phil, more people in this one thing in their life than I have reached in 15 years of ministry. That's God. Only God can do that. But it happens through our sufferings. Part of the reason that we can give thanks in spite of the difficulty that it is for us because he's using those things. My question to you, and I believe the question that the Spirit of God has for us in this, is do you have CO? Is there evidence within your life that you are a true child of God before God, before the saved, and before the lost? The one thing that we should never be is odorless. We should either smell like life or we should smell like death but we shouldn't smell like nothing. And Paul would say he makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place that we go. The fourth thing that he says that is an undeniable evidence that someone is truly saved, uh, that cannot be faked by those that um, are the tares among us, is that the motivation or what drives the, 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 the reason behind someone being a Christian is pure. They have a pure motivation. Notice in verse 17 what he says. He says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. The word corrupt that he uses there in the Greek, it means to make a trade out of the word of God or to use divine truth as a means for base gain to craft the Bible or the truths of God in such a way that I can enrich myself by it. Paul says we are not as many that do that, testifying that there are many that do that. And even to the present day, there are many that do that, that take divine truth and they use it as a platform to elevate themselves and then to enrich themselves. And their motive, the reason why they're doing what they're doing, teaching the Bible, writing books, producing radio or television programs, missions organizations, newsletters, fundraisers, and all the rest, the motive that's behind those things is that they're seeking to brand some some form or style of Christianity. They're seeking to associate an image with themselves or with their church or with their style in some way. Or they'll take a doctrine or a theme of scripture and they'll put a a bent on it or a spin on it in such a way is that you must come to them or depend upon them in order to understand the deep things or the true things about that in their life. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, freely you have received, therefore freely give. And anytime a person has behind their ministry the motive of earning money or or, or in some way uh, elevating themselves or putting a brand or a face to something in the faith, it's a revelation that the motive isn't pure. 
They, they can't afford to just invisibly give away what's been freely given to them. Somehow there has to be attention or profit that's drawn from it. And for Paul, that's what this would look like. He's saying, listen, you can search every place that we've been and you can remember every minute that we were among you. And never once in all the years that we were there or in anything that you've ever heard about me, is there any hint at all that there was any ulterior motive as to why we follow Christ and why we serve him the way that we do? Our motives are absolutely pure. That's what it would be for Paul. But what about for you and I? What does this look like? How does it translate into the life of someone who's not an apostle or someone who's not in ministry? What does it mean to have pure motives that are the proof that I'm a real Christian? It means this. It means, am I using God or the church or his principles to get something I want Or am I following him and loving him because of who he is and what he's done for me? The Bible says in 1 John that we love him because he first loved us. That's the proper motive. That's the proper reason. But if it's for any other thing, if I'm following Christ because of something that he's going to do for me, I want a better life. I want a better job. I want to get married. I want things to be different. I want a financial position that's better than the one that I've got now. And God, certainly your soil looks like a better way to have that happen in my life than the field that I'm planted in now. And so I'll be a part of the church or a part of following you or I'll do what I have to do, God. But the motive is not a pure motive. The motive is not God. The motive is to get something from God. So the question is this, in your life, Christian, is God an end? Or is God a means to some other end that you might be pursuing? It's a very searching question. Because it's the whole difference between what is real and authentic and what is fake and false. The men of Shechem came to Jacob. They wanted Dinah to be the daughter of the son of the mayor. He had raped her and defiled the family of Jacob through his actions, but he wanted to marry her nonetheless because his son loved Dinah. And Jacob said, if you will all be circumcised, If you will all be converted, if you will all come forward in the service, then we will intermarry with you. You can take Dinah and we'll trade among you. And the king of Shechem went to his people and he had to convince them all to come forward in the evangelistic crusade. And this was the word that he gave to them. He said, if we comply, will not all their cattle and all of their substance be ours? And it says that they agreed. They took religion to get the world. And anyone who gets religion in order to get the world will leave religion to get the world. It's a false motive. It's a counterfeit reason. It's not legitimate Christianity. Now contrast that with the Apostle Paul, who says that we didn't corrupt the word of God, but it was sincere. It was genuine. It was authentic. You can examine my life and you'll find nothing. What did Joseph from the Old Testament have to gain by refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to gain by not bowing down to the statue and being thrown into the burning fiery furnace, laying down their lives? What did Queen Esther have to gain in going in to King Ahasuerus uninvited, risking her life to do so? What did Christ Jesus have to gain in remaining silent before Pontius Pilate, knowing that it would mean the end of his life? And what did those who have laid down their lives for their faith in Christ throughout the centuries have to gain by maintaining a good confession in order not to save their own skin? It's the revelation of a real work of the Holy Spirit and of Christ within their life is that there was authenticity in their profession. The true motive for following Christ is not something that he'll do for me, It's the fact that I am a sinner that's in need of a savior, which he provided in the person of Christ. And now my life belongs to him for whatever he wants to do with it, even if that means to lay it down in a fiery furnace or at a guillotine. My life is his because of what he did for me. That's the acceptable motive of what it means to follow Christ. And you cannot fake that. If you don't know the love of Christ, what God's provided through it, You cannot live that life. And so Paul says, we can afford to be legit and sincere. We don't peddle the word of God. 
we're sincere in our faith. Pure motivation. And then finally, number five, the fifth mark of a truly authentic Christian is that in that life, there will be fruit that speaks for itself. Notice in chapter three, verse one, he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or recommend ourselves or advertise for ourselves? Any of those words will work there. Or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation, advertisements, ordination certificates, college degrees, polished resumes with references of people that can testify to our fruitfulness in other places? Do we need those things to bring to you in order to gain legitimacy? Or do we need letters of recommendation from you? Did we at any time while we were with you say, hey, could you just write a little reference letter for me? We're going to another city and it might help out a little if, you know, they know that we were fruitful here. Paul says we did not have any of that. We don't carry any of it with us. We don't rely upon it. There's no D, uh, uh, M, D, R, uh, M, V, you know, doctor of divinity after my name on my license plate of the car, you know, the theological professor, none of it. He says, I don't need it. Why? Verse two, because you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. What has been birthed in your life on account of the fact that you have been a recipient of our ministry, that testifies to the legitimacy of our walk with God. We don't need the outward things. The fruit that comes from our ministry speaks for itself. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, the letter written by Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. The effect has happened in your life. That's where the proof is. And that is the trust that we have through Christ towards God. That is the evidence that things are are working within our lives. The question is this, for you, Christian, is Christ really alive in your heart? And if he is, the result of that is that there are going to be things that happen in your life and through your life that only he can produce. You can't fake it. The apostle Paul came to the city of Corinth. It was a Roman city It was Roman culture with Roman morals. And he came into that setting and he preached a restrictive, archaic, foolish by their standards message in weakness, in humility, and with simple speech. It was the antithesis of anything that would work or be considered effective. And yet a church was planted within that city because it wasn't Paul that was doing it. It was the Holy Spirit through Paul And only the Holy Spirit through Paul could do it in that way. Now, you could adapt to Roman culture. You could compromise to Roman morals. You could preach an accepting gospel. You could bring things into the modern technological vernacular of expression and and, 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 uh, um, art. You could preach a message that's wise by the standard of the Corinthians. And you could start a church that way. But Paul says the evidence that God was with us and that he was working through us, is that we could do it in the simplest, most sincere and invisible way, and we could see God do something that only God could do. The sincerity of it speaks for itself. Every single Christian, and that includes every person here tonight that that, that says that they are a Christian, should be able to look at their life, whether they've been saved for one week or whether they've been saved for 20 years. And there should be evidence in your life both internally, that is what he's done in you, changing you, and evidence externally, that is what he's done with you, that testifies to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is actually in your life. And that grows. It's not something that we have all at once, but every one of us that's here should be able to look at things and say, that is something that God did that I could never have done myself. The victory in this area of my life the reaching of that person that could never be reached by any you know, pleading or discipline or anything else that God used me to reach, the truth that I was able to communicate that I didn't even know, but God somehow worked through me to bring that to somebody else. Every one of us should be able to look at some element of fruit and say, God, 
you did this and I could never have done it on my own. It's fruit that speaks for itself. The evidence that we are Christians should not be our t-shirt or our bumper stickers or the words that come out of our mouths or our attendance in church services. The common denominator in all five of these things that we looked at tonight is that God alone is the one that can produce these things. They cannot be manufactured. That's the word I've been looking for all night. (laughs) They cannot be manufactured in the adapted behavior of a person. It cannot be counterfeited in uh, in that way. Now, notice what Paul says twice in this passage as we draw now to a close. And the musicians can come. That's how you know we're so close to being done with this Bible study tonight. Um, twice in this passage, he says this. He says, who is sufficient for these things? He says it in verse three concerning God making us the aroma of Christ. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And then he says it again in verse five, the closing verse of the passage. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. The word sufficient, you could circle it and close by it. You could write competent. You could write the word able. You could write the word enough. Meaning who, you could say it another way, who is competent to produce these things in their own life? Or who is able to produce these things in their own life? Or who can ever look at their life and say, I have enough of these things? Or that on my own, I can produce enough of these things? Here's the truth, is that you and I have no part at all in producing these attributes of authentic Christianity within our lives, except one thing, is that we are sincere, born-again, blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ who have laid down our lives at the foot of the cross and said, God, Holy Spirit, come into my life, and I want Jesus to be my Lord, and I will follow him wherever he, he wants to lead, and I will allow you to produce in my life whatever you want to produce in my life, both in the removing of the things that don't belong there and also the insertion of the things that do. And the person whose heart is in that position is going to begin to see these things happen within their life. The person who refuses the cross and refuses the lordship of Christ will never see these things happen in them. They will never be able to give thanks for circumstances that don't make sense. It'll never happen. They will never be victorious in the circumstances and the things and the battles that they face within their lives. They will never be the aroma of life to those that are saved or the aroma of death to those that perish. They will blend in perfectly with everyone else and heaven will never recognize that person either. They do not have to recommend themselves and they don't, um, that will have fruit in their lives that uh, comes automatically, but only the person that truly knows him. So as we close, we ask the question, what does it mean if I then look into the mirror of all of this tonight in the Bible and what looks back at me is that my life doesn't measure up on the right side of all of this? And I see that there are marks in me that I'm not the authentic Christian that the Apostle Paul holds before us tonight as an example. The first question I I, I must ask myself in response to that is this. Have I truly made him the Savior and the Lord of my life? You can make him your Savior and yet not make him your Lord and come short in some of these things. If you've ever looked inside of a piano you'll see that the strings inside of a piano, that there's, this is overtime. I didn't plan this, okay. This is, this is extra. I don't need, you know. If you look inside, you'll see that most of the, the main strings, the, the, the middle strings of the piano up into the high notes, that there's three strings for every key. And in order for that piano to be in tune, each one of those three strings has to measure perfectly the right vibration. They have to be completely in tune with each other. If even one of those strings is out, it'll be discordant. It'll sound like an old church piano. Won't, the, the tones won't make sense. And you go, ah. As we relate to God, there are three strings. We have a relationship with God the Father. And we're in harmony, in tune with him when we get saved. Romans 5 verse 1. It says, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you are saved because you've made a covenant with God through the blood of Christ, you are in harmony. That string is in tune. But there's a second string. And that's your relationship with God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that relationship is that he is to be the Lord of everything that we are. Every part of our life is to be laid down at his feet. And if he is not the Lord of our life, though we can be at peace with God, we are out of harmony with heaven as it relates to our walk with him. And thus we begin to see a discordance in the things of our life. The third string is our walk and relationship with God the Holy Spirit, who is the source of what makes us fruitful in our lives within the world. If we're in harmony with God, with his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord of our life, the automatic result of that will be the Holy Spirit flowing through us. And there will be harmony between us on earth and God in heaven. And the result will be that we will see these things formed within our life. So let me ask you tonight, is he your savior and your Lord? Are you authentic in your walk with him? If not, then that's where this begins. If you want to be the real deal, get in the game. If you say, yes, those things are right, but I certainly would love to see more of those five attributes within my life, then come back next week. Because the Apostle Paul is about to take us in to the place where these things are found. And they are reachable by every one of us. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the testimony that it brings. We thank you for the impact that it has within us. And as your searchlight has brightly shined within our hearts tonight, Lord, each one of us can say there's things that have been exposed that we don't like to know that are there. And we ask, Father, that tonight... And in the weeks to come, you would address each of those things. And that through this study, we would find ourselves in a place, Lord, where not only are we authentic and genuinely walking rightly before you and before men, but that we would see the fullness of the blessing of that worked out in our lives as well. So take this truth, O God. Take our hearts. We lay them down at your altar. Be our God, our Savior, our Lord, and our source. We make that our prayer tonight as we close this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?